I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Good morning, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. And I have two great guests this morning. Standing by to join us is Paul Brinkley Rogers. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning war correspondent and author of Please Enjoy Your Happiness. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Thank you so much for calling in. Hello. My pleasure. Okay. Delayed reaction. I really have enjoyed reading your book. As I mentioned, I didn't get through the entire book, but it's wonderful. I wanted to find out, I want to back up and have you tell the listeners a little bit about how you became a war correspondent. Um, okay. Would you like me to start now? Yes, that would be wonderful. Um, you know, it really all started, I think, because of uh, my experiences in Japan uh, from 1959 when I met the woman I wrote about. Uh, through 1962, when I got out of the Navy. Um, I was fascinated uh, in Japan as a country, really liked uh, learning about the culture there, was learning Japanese. Um, So um, I got a National Defense Foreign Language Fellowship uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, majored in Japanese uh, history and language, uh, won a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and um, a scholarship from Harvard to study uh, ancient Japanese history there. Wow. Uh, but by chance, on a train ride um, to Chicago, I met Newsweek's bureau chief in Chicago, and he recruited me to um, a sudden death training program they had in the summer. Okay. I did well in that, and uh, a couple of years later, after one of Newsweek's uh, correspondents was killed in Vietnam, uh, they sent me there. Unbelievable. Uh, That's where it all started. What a chain of events. Yeah. Tell me some of the uh, thoughts running through your head. You ran across these old letters. Uh, Tell me about that. Because, you, you know, what made you decide to write this book? Right, a good question. Um, you know, it all really started uh, when I was around, I'm in mean, 77 now, but it started probably when I was about 72 or 73 when I started going to Costa Rica mm-hmm. uh, just to hang out and socialize. Um, I met a group of uh, men my own age, Americans and other nationalities, and um, we would sit around sometimes <clears throat> in the afternoon or the evening uh, talking about our lives, uh, drinking beer, smoking cigars, and mm-hmm. generally just having fun. Um, and on several occasions, those conversations turned to women that we had known in our extreme youth, first loves, in other words. And um, I... I had vague memories at that stage um, of this woman I knew, and I knew that she had written me letters, which I hadn't seen for many decades. Um, so um, 
when I got back to the USA, I started going through my boxes and trunks and things like that. Couldn't find her letters. Uh, gradually, as I was doing the search, more memories came back about her. And then one day I was going through books in the poetry section of my personal library and pulled out a book, uh, collected letters of Gerard, Gerard Manley Hopkins, a British poet, and uh, her letters tumbled out onto the floor. I knew immediately what they were, even without reading them. Uh. I went to the couch, um, arranged the letters in chronological order, and started reading and promptly burst into tears. Oh. You know, when she wrote to me again, I was only 19, very naive, uh, young sailor aboard a U.S. Navy ship, Mm-hmm. wandering around the Pacific. I just wanted to have fun and yeah. <laughs> go out with my uh, friends on the ship. Sure. Um, but I had met her, and um, she liked the fact that I read, um, and um, she started encouraging me to read more mm-hmm. and to learn about her culture. We developed an intense friendship um, that did not, by the way, include uh, even a kiss. Oh. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, uh, if you read the book, uh, you know, you'll realize that this was a love affair. Yes. A love affair of the heart, really, and the mind. That's beautiful. Um, uh, sort of, you know, in the days before, hooking up became a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, you could have a real friendship mm-hmm. uh, between a, a young man and uh, a woman. Um, yeah, a real friendship. And that's really what this was all about. That's a rarity. <laughs> it sounds like a rarity. I mean, it's... Rarity, a rarity nowadays, yeah, you know. Yeah. Sure. It is still possible, though. I mean, yeah. again, I'm a single male. I have been now for 14 years, I guess. But mm-hmm. I have I have women friends here in the Phoenix area where I live. And um, we exchange ideas. We go to dinner together, go to the theater, occasionally travel together. Uh, but those are friendships, and they're in older age. I think they're very, very rewarding, and they're possible. Do you think that your uh, friendship, relationship with this woman, helped shape who you became later on? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, I, all of her letters, you know, used are used in the book um, for verbatim, and um, readers will see that. Uh, she often demanded, in fact, um, that I go to college, mm-hmm. um, be a good boy, study hard, read, imagine, she said. Uh, and she predicted I, w- I would write a book someday. Um, you know, you can imagine how astonishing that was, that statement was, to a kid who was only 19 years old. Sure. Of uh, but, of course, most of the things that she suggested and demanded came to pass. Um, you know, in my subconscious, I think, through the years, she was a constant guide mm-hmm. and continues to be so, really, uh, even at this advanced age. I feel like she gave you such insight and wisdom and guidance at a young age that her words stuck with you. You know, that's really true. Um, a couple of people have told me that this is sort of the story is kind of a reverse Pygmalion. Usually it's the man giving the younger woman advice and encouragement and, uh, and maybe even an affair. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. In this case, it was an older woman. I mean, I was 19. She was probably 31. That's, that's my guess. I, I didn't have the courage to ask her okay. for her age. <laughs> but um, she was the guide. She was the dominant figure in the, in the relationship. Um, she was the person um, who took it upon herself to sort of help me make the transition from being just a mere boy mm-hmm. to a young man. Um, and she attempted to mold me in in such a way that would be pleasing to her and pleasing to other women. Uh, when I met her, you know, she she was on the run, basically, from a very abusive relationship with a Japanese gangster. Um, she had been a refugee, actually. Uh, she was born into the Japanese settler community in, in Manchuria, in North China, uh, before war started, before World War II started. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of World War II, when the Russians came in and chased the Japanese out of there, she and what remained of her family fled uh, pretty much on foot for about 900 miles to a seaport to try to catch a ship back to Japan. But even in Japan, nice. she was still a stranger. She was a foreign-born Japanese, and she was, she was an outsider. Um, even in her own country. That's frightening. As I was, too. I mean, I was a new immigrant to the United States. Um, I was an outsider here in this country, and also an outsider in Japan. So I was dealing with a double whammy in terms of culture shock. So could you, you could sense this, uh, this experience in her, I could imagine. You know, she was a very secretive person, I think, because of the trauma in her past. Mm-hmm. And also, she didn't want to upset me, I think. And she didn't want really to drag me into the situation that she was in, uh, hiding out, basically, knowing that uh, these gangsters would uh, come to uh, reclaim her, ready to take her back where they had used her as a prostitute. Um but fortunately, um, during that summer that I knew her, when these various incidents that I described happened, mm-hmm. um, the Japanese detective who was in charge of her case uh, happened to have the same experience she did. He also had been born in Manchuria. Um, so he had more than a normal interest in, in her situation and was fascinated by the friendship that she and I had. I think he thought it was extraordinary that a, that a Japanese woman would be on such intimate terms with a young foreigner. Well, it's a fascinating book. And uh, do you ever imagine what her reaction would be if she read it? <laughs> Often. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, some people think that actually I wrote this um, to try to find her again or be reunited. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I really wrote the book as a tribute to her. Um, for what she did for me. Uh, If it was possible, I mean, if the book went into Japanese language translation and she heard about it, um, or if there were relatives of hers or friends of hers who heard about it and were curious, and um, especially if she found the book in translation and she saw the letters in the book, then she would know those are her her letters to me. Yes. Um, You know... uh, Maybe I would hear about that. The Japanese media is very aggressive. Um, they probably would tr- attempt to track her down. She would be about 88 or 89 years old now. 
a Japanese friends of mine in Tokyo tell me, you know, Paul, um, that's not so old, actually, for a Japanese woman. Lots of Japanese live uh, long lives. That's what I thought. And, you know, she was a remarkable enough person. She must have left a track record somewhere mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what happened to her later in life. Um, one Japanese friend in Tokyo who read an early version of the manuscript was so fascinated by her that she uh, took two train, train rides to the city where this woman lived in an attempt to track her. That was about three or four years ago, but unsuccessfully. But my, that Japanese friend tells me, though, that, you know, don't give up hope. It's possible that she's still around or sure. that there are people who, who know her. Who know of her, sure. Yeah. I feel like it could be a great movie. <laughs> I really do. Uh, several reviews have mentioned that um, Perkis, which does usually pretty hardcore, brutal reviews of books, mm -hmm. gave my book a star, which is astonishing for a first book. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thanks. And I think the last line in their review was, uh, more astonishing than fiction and ripe for screenplay. There you go. So there you go. The only problem with that is sometimes, you know, you turn over your story and it becomes something else, and it loses the whole message. Right, right. Well, I, I have a screenwriter friend, actually, here in Phoenix, who works in Hollywood for many years, and mm -hmm. he says, you know, Paul, this would be a great film. However, if Hollywood made this film, you would have to sleep with her. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and that would destroy the story, because there's great sensual tension in the book. Yes, um, several women friends of mine who've read it said it's actually one of the most sensual books they've read. Mm -hmm. But again, um, we never kissed. Amazing. Yeah, if it was a movie, you'd have a couple kids that you'd discover, and you know, there'd be all these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would never do. But, you know, other countries make great films, including, including the British. And mm -hmm. when I knew her, of course, I was a British citizen. Oh. I was not an American citizen, even though I was in the U.S. Navy. Oh, well, how did that happen? Um, my family emigrated to this country when I was 16, and uh, I didn't really know what to do with myself when I turned 18. There was no tradition within my immediate family group of going to college. Um, the, I, so joining, joining the Navy for four years seemed like a smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I enlisted for four years and actually had a really good time. That's great. Let me ask you this. Uh, being a war correspondent, was there, was there ever a time when you were thinking, this is very scary, or I don't know if this is for me, or was there no fear involved? You know, that's the subject, really, of a second memoir that I'm doing that's set exactly 10 years after this first one. Uh, my, you know, my book. Please enjoy your happiness. Mm -hmm. The second memoir deals with my adventures in Vietnam and Cambodia between 1969 and uh, 1975. And um, in those days, I was writing for Newsweek. Um, again, because of my, <laughs> because of, because I could speak Japanese and because of my experiences in Japan. They, the magazine called me up one day and said, that, you know, we're sending you to Viet Vietnam. You're an Asia expert. But, of course, you, as you know, they don't speak Japanese in Vietnam. It's an entirely different language and culture. Mm -hmm. um, and um, during, during the five years, I was in and out of uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. 
uh, you know, because of the lifestyle there, because this was, it was a, a job, but it was not just a job, it was also a continuous adventure. It was like being in a, in a movie without an end. Incredible. The whole subject about whether or not I was afraid, I don't think that really ever came up as a topic that I thought about, and friends of mine who were reporters or photographers there thought about. We just did what we did, and to some degree, to use kind of a dated expression, kind of grooved on it. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely sort of, you know, the high point in our lives. Um, my job as the junior member of the Newsweek Bureau in Saigon was pretty much to go out and witness war. Um, but, uh, but again, no, I don't... I mean, the, yeah, there were cer certain cer situations where I was fearful, but I don't think I ever said, no, I, I don't want to go out today to sure. find, find out what's going yes. on. And we just, yes. just sort of did it. It sounds like you were very, always very inquisitive and brave, and you were so open. Yeah, I was always curious, I guess, mm -hmm. to uh, get to the bottom of rumors and um, news accounts and developments. Plus, um, you know, this was before the days of cell phones or texting, but um, there were pretty good communications with Newsweek's people back in New York City. Uh, via telex, um, and uh, there was a constant dialogue. Occasionally, there would even be a phone call from New York City mm -hmm. uh, to Saigon or Phnom Penh in Cambodia. Um, and uh, Newsweek's editors were very caring and very protective of those people they put in the field. That's good. Um, GIs uh, who had that experience about R and R every six months, they could they could go to somewhere in, in uh, Southeast Asia for a week and mm. um, let it all hang out. Use another dated expression. We got uh, all expenses paid trips uh, anywhere in the world, really every That's two great. months. And uh, so I would fly to Copenhagen or London or United States uh, for a week. Uh, to try it out, basically. I was going to say, after you've traveled the world, and, you know, where do you go? <laughs> where, where are your favorite <laughs> places? Because here you are, you are a war correspondent. Yeah, I, you know, I did, every, I mean, I did pretty much everything. I, I enjoyed going to Copenhagen. It was mm -hmm. um, a, a culture I liked very much, the Danish culture. But at the same time, I also occasionally did what the GIs did, which was go to Bangkok, um, Go out in the evening, go to the nightclubs, uh, chase girls, mm -hmm. um, get drunk, uh, <laughs> sleep long hours, and at the end of that week, you know, get myself together and uh, get on the plane back to Saigon or Phnom Penh. Sure. It must be fascinating to you being in the trenches, covering these stories, the reality of what's happening, and then what people write about in the news is not always the same thing. That was a constant uh, struggle. You know, how do you um, how do you put what you see with your eyes and what you hear and smell and taste into words? Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're witnessing tragic situa tragic situations. How do you do 
the people who you witnessed suffering, how do you do them justice? And right. how are you fair? And how are you, how can you write with a mix of uh, strong emotion, but also practical uh, discipline? Yes. And still do the situation justice. I can't even imagine what the things you've seen, you know, doing what you've done. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Sure. But I am writing about it, at least, oh, for, in the second memoir. Um, and I'm trying to write not the usual uh, I Covered a War book, mm-hmm. which is usually very technical and professional. Um, the book I'm writing is more what we as young people, this is both the young men and women sent out there to cover those wars, what we did in our private time, what we did together for fun, mm-hmm. um, as well as those adventures that we had together when we were going out there uh, witnessing war. It's. I find it interesting that you didn't write your first book until you're in your 70s as a result of these letters falling out of this book. And then now you're on to your second book as a result of finding those letters. You know what I'm saying? Right. I, I know what you mean. It's well, wonderful. you know, through the years, um, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I, I worked for Newsweek, but I also worked for the Miami Herald and some other newspapers. That kept me very busy, and uh, a lot of those work situations were pretty fascinating, yes. including covering more war and violence. That became my specialty. Yeah. Uh, after I left full-time employment, mid, mid-60s, mid I was still working in that field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, did other things. I did some volunteer teaching in an inner-city school in Phoenix for kids who had felony records. Um, I worked for uh, a local Spanish-language newspaper. You know, I'm British, I'm not Latino, but... Uh, my Spanish is good. Um, I uh, work for a Latino civil rights organization in Phoenix, um, the Raza Development Fund, which is kind of like the bank for the National Council of La Raza, mm-hmm. um, the Latino civil rights organization. Uh, so I had other things going. Sure. Um, then when I got into my early 70s, as I said before, I started doing some traveling just to have fun instead of um, work assignments and developed this connection with Costa Rica, beautiful little country, formed this um, uh, friendship with um, these other older foreign males living down there. And in reflecting about my past and about this relationship that I had with the woman I just wrote about, uh, then my priorities changed, I guess. I had so much fun writing the first book, I mean, I spent a lot of time laughing when That's I was writing. That's good. Because it's not, not all dark, right. gloomy stuff. Yes. There's a lot of funny stuff in there. Um, a lot of weeping, too. I mean, cries of happy tears. Yes. <laughs> uh, because I knew what I was writing was compelling and that people would enjoy reading about it. Um, so now, again, I'm into this new mode of, uh, of uh, writing books, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. I think it's fantastic. I do want to add, because um, you didn't mention, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. Could you just uh, talk about that, and then we have to wrap up? Uh, that came out of um, my work with the Miami Herald. Um, 
uh, I don't know if your reader, your listeners will um, remember the Elion Gonzalez affair, a little do. Cuban boy oh, who yes. was rescued at sea after the boat that was carrying him and his mother and some other Cubans sank at sea, mm-hmm. um, trying to get to Florida from Havana. Yes. Uh, the newspaper got me involved in that story, the Miami Herald, and um, they wanted to have a non-Latino immersed in, in, in that story, where uh, Cuban-American reporters might have an axe to grind, perhaps, or have difficulty working with a story that was all about Cuban culture. They wanted to have an outsider come in and write about it. Um, but I was a member of a team of, of about five six reporters and half a dozen photographers who were assigned to that story. Um, That's so wonderful. For several months, I had to go out into the Cuban community, try to understand their passions about that story, uh, deal with the various uh, controversies and involving Elion, the young kid, mm-hmm. uh, including the final uh, takedown of those family members of his in Miami who were housing him and holding him. Uh, if you remember, U.S. federal police went in there and uh, grabbed the kid finally to return yes. him to Cuba. I remember the footage distinctly. Yeah, yeah. dramatic picture of a guy with a gun seizing the kid uh, who was in tears mm. uh, being held by one of his relatives in Miami. So actually, our reporting team won that. Um, one that feels I, I, I just want to share of it. I think that's fantastic. Unfortunately, Paul, we do have to wrap up. All but, right. But I want to keep in touch with you because if you're ever back in Orange County and when you do finish your second book, I'd love to have you back on. Thanks. I have your telephone number. I'll, I'll stay in touch. Sounds it's highly good. possible I'll be out there again. Wonderful. Now, just tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you or follow you. Uh, you have a website. Yeah. Um, Please Enjoy Your Happiness is the name of the book. It's available at uh, places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, available you know, online also. Um, there's plenty of commentary about it. And uh, people are welcome to email me if they wish. Um, I've had a lot of uh, contact also at my Facebook page um, with, new, with people. Oh, good. Um, my email is rog39 at yahoo.com. Perfect. Paul, I want to All thank right. you so much for calling into the show. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Paul Brinkley Rogers calling in. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and veteran war correspondent. And he was calling in to talk about his book, Please Enjoy Your Happiness. If you missed any part of the show, it will be up on my show blog within an hour after I wrap. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out.